Now we're going to read from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Good morning. The heading is um, Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that it, that it's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, It is right for you to be angry. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what happened what, what would happen to the city then the lord god provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort and jonah was very happy about the plant but at dawn the next day god provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, it is right for you to be angry about the plant it is, he said, that I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it to make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So let's think on this last passage in Jonah for a little while then. Um, now, I, I have said before at a previous church that um, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I basically had my rebellious teenage years before I was a teenager, okay? I basically got all of my teenage years out of the way kind of when I was less than 10 years old. Um, uh, you can ask my mum and dad. I think they'd agree with that. When I was primary school age, I was a real handful. I know, I know you can't imagine it. Um, but I was, I really was. I used to get really frustrated about things when I was young. Partly it was that we were quite sporty and I had an older brother. Yeah. Uh, we were quite competitive and we would spend our, our summers out the front of our house playing uh, football and tennis. 
And, and I did that thing that kids do. You just don't like it when things aren't going your way, don't you? And I used to get really wound up about it. We had a, uh, a naughty step in my house, in our house. It was my frequent friend uh, during those days. Uh, but I remember once, I was about six or seven years old, and my older brother and I were involved in a, in a football tournament. Now, his team did much better than mine, which as the younger brother, you look up and think, oh, no. Um, he got the silver medal. We didn't even get close, okay? And I was so upset afterwards. It was so frustrating that we hadn't won anything that my mum and dad, his classic parenting, that they, they gave a medal to me themselves just to make me feel a bit better about it all. But being seven, it wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough. So what I did was one day I stole my brother's medal and I took it into school and I showed my teacher and said, look at what I won. I won it. Don't lie, children, okay? Don't lie. Um, but I said, uh, I won this in a running race. That's how I won. I won the silver medal in, in a running race, and I got to show it off in front of my whole class. A teacher bought it, hook, line, and sinker. It's great. Lots and lots of attention for that. Now, also that day, though, we had something called the Good Work Assembly. And what that was was each class would send a representative or two who had done some good work, and they could represent the class in the assembly. And so guess what? Because I had done this running race, I was chosen. And so I got to stand up at the front of the whole school and talk about how I had won the silver medal in my running race. Fantastic. Of course, being seven... I hadn't thought of something. And that was that my older brother was in the same school. And he heard what I said. And I will never forget the face, the look that he gave me as he was walking up the front at the end of the, end of the assembly, like thunder about the fact that I had stolen his medal and lied in front of not just my teacher, but the entire school. I don't remember the rest of it conveniently, um, but my guess is, is that the naughty step came into play once again, and I was resolved to being there, and it became my friend once again, more that, once again more that day. And it was just one of those many times that I got angry, and it landed me in pretty hot water. But of course, I'm an adult now, and of course, we as adults never do that, do we? We never get angry about things. Ever. Or should I move swiftly on? Probably best to, isn't it? We rejoin the prophet Jonah in the last chapter in this four-chapter book. If you remember, Jonah disobeyed God, ran the other direction, got on a ship to Tarshish instead of going to preach to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. Uh, God sent a storm and a big fish to bring him back. He experienced God's saving grace in his own life, saved by the fish in the water, and he vowed to go to Nineveh to make good on what God had asked him to do. And last week, O'Brien took us through chapter 3, um, how God so graciously gave Jonah a second chance, as he wanted to do with Nineveh, and as he does so in our lives too. There's good news in Jesus Christ. He gives us second chances, and don't we all need it? 
And we left the action last week with Jonah having done exactly as God commanded, gone to the city, preached, the pagan city of Nineveh, preached his warning message. 40 days and you'll be overthrown, he said, if they didn't turn to the Lord and repent of their ways. And incredibly, the whole city did just that. And that's where we pick up the action. Now, you know, any prophet, any preacher, in fact, would pretty much do anything for a response like that. You know, a collective response from 120,000 citizens, including the king of the city. I mean, that's a pretty good accolade, isn't it? Billy Graham, eat your heart out, it would have been. Bournemouth, for example, about somewhere between 180 to 200,000 citizens. It would be like us going to Bournemouth, going through Bournemouth, and the whole of Bournemouth, including the the, the mayor, the MPs, everyone from the, the lowest to the highest in society saying, okay, I'm convicted, I repent, and I turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Churches would be filled to the brim the next Sunday. You would have to put on multiple services to try and accommodate every single person. And churches right the way across Bournemouth would be doing so. I mean, it would just be incredible, wouldn't it? We'd all be saying, it's a miracle. Isn't God amazing? Wouldn't we? What'd you do? Come on, wouldn't we? Yeah, we would. There we go. We would. We would say that, wouldn't we? Isn't it amazing? That's basically what happens at the end of Jonah chapter 3. And you'd think once we'd heard verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened, you would be in celebration mode as the prophet who was involved in doing that. Many prophets would go their whole lives and see nothing like this. And yet we get chapter 4 at the end of the book of Jonah. After everything he's gone through, everything he's seen happen at Nineveh, the wonderful events, where do we find Jonah? Well, we find him having left the city, gone out into the desert, gone off in a huff, because, as we discover, he just feels it's all so unfair. And he's angry about it. He's angry about it. He's a bit like seven-year-old me. I mean, people talk about the condition called infantile regression. Um, one of the commentators about, on the book of Jonah, Jonah, Sinclair Ferguson, he described Jonah's response as almost being like spiritual infantile regression. He reverts to being like a child, throwing a tantrum in the desert with God because he hasn't got what he thinks should have happened. It's almost comical to imagine him, in fact, on his own, out in the desert, throw, throwing this, this wobbly and having this conversation with God that then ends this book. But, you know, all humor aside, when you think about chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, it is, in fact, one of the darkest chapters in the whole 
of the Bible's story. When you actually get to grips with what Jonah says and does and what God is saying and doing, this is, this is some really dark thinking that Jonah has got himself into. Really dark. The problem is, the church, even today, is in danger of walking along similar lines as to what we hear from Jonah. Perhaps not in quite the same way, but similar. And there really is a message that we also need to hear from this chapter, particularly as we think about our world and the task that well, I'll be saying it even more from this point onwards. New mission coming up next week to reach our world for Jesus. These verses are highly important for us as well. So let's take a closer look at things this morning before we talk about that more, uh, our mission next week. First, let's look at Jonah's problem. What is his problem here? Chapter 3, Nineveh repents, God relents. Start of chapter 4, the camera switches back to Jonah and we get his response to the monumental events that have just happened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, we all get angry, as I kind of indicated earlier. It would be silly to say we don't. But as Aristotle once said, anyone can be angry, this is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, this is not easy, he says. There's wisdom in that statement, isn't there? Certainly is. I mean, even Jesus got angry, okay? Cleared the temple of the corrupt moneylenders because he was righteously, rightfully angry. Not all anger is wrong, but he was angry for the right people to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way. He was God. He was the most balanced person in history and did everything for the right reasons and in the right way. But why is Jonah angry? What's got his goat? about all of this? And has he got any right to be angry? Well, we can give him some credit to begin with because he's learned something in all of this encounter. And that is that the right place to take your frustrations is not to run away from God, but to take them to God. Lesson number one, he prays. Tick. VG. Very good. Good start. But then everything from there is basically a whole heap of awful. It really is. I mean, let's just listen first of all to what he prays to God to begin with. It reveals what he's felt all along about his task. Verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That wondrous, incredible outcome of a city repenting and turning to God in faith for their salvation. That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. And here's another bit. He says, I knew that you, God, are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knows that about God. So what's his problem with all of this? 
Well, Jonah's problem is that the incredible grace of God has been made known and has been made available to the lives of a pagan, unbelieving people. Just think about that for a second. That's what he's angry about. He's angry because God is gracious and compassionate towards a sinful, pagan people who have now turned back to him. There's something strange and weird going on here. Okay. And he's so bothered about it. He's so wound up and frustrated about the whole thing, at least at this point. He would rather die, he says, than live to see them repent. That's his thinking about all of this. That's where he's got to in all of it. I'd rather die, he says. In fact, he says it more than once. That is the strength of angst and despair he feels about the whole situation. And it's all because he hasn't got what he wanted. Have you ever been angry about anything or anyone? in our world? Well, Jonah tells us that even true believers can get angry about the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. So here are the wrong reasons that Jonah gets angry about his circumstance. Well, why why is he angry? Well, he's angry, perhaps you could say, because of nationalism, right? Jonah gets angry because nationally the Assyrians are enemies of God's people. They're They're pagan, and they are brutal. That is very much true. You can read anything about the history of the Assyrians, and they were brutal, particularly with conquered peoples. The things they did to people were just wicked. Second, he could be angry. Religiously, as a nation, they worshipped false gods and idols. Their cities were full of pagan worship and revelry. It's another black mark in Jonah's book. Why, God, why? Let them burn. Three, militarily. They had threatened the people of Israel and would do so again. Fifty years later, the same God who was saving Assyria at this point would use them to judge the northern kingdom of Israel for their sin and the northern kingdom would disappear off the face of the earth. We assume Jonah knew something of that, and he hated Assyria for it. And then quite simply, ethnically. They simply were not the people of God. The Hebrew people. His people. The ones for whom he felt his interest should be directed. The people he felt of anyone should be worthy of God's grace. I mean, why was he being sent to Assyria in the first place? Why should he care about them? Surely Israel, his people, his family, his interests, surely they needed God's grace more. Surely they had to come first. So why is God saving Nineveh? Everything about the Assyrians grated with Jonah. Even after even at this point, even after he himself 
had experienced the grace of God, that God would send a fish and appoint a fish to come and save him in his deepest need. We learn in chapter 4 that underneath, there's still attitudes that haven't changed here. The prejudices he held were just as strong, if not even stronger now. Even to the point where he does, when provoked by the Lord's question, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? What does he do? He goes and sits somewhere outside the city on his own, in a sulk, makes a shelter, and sits and watches to see what might just happen with the city. Can you imagine this? He's out in the desert, sitting down somewhere in a little shelter that he's made, sitting, watching the city, hoping beyond hope that maybe, just maybe, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe I'll be able to see it all happen. Maybe it'll just take place in front of my eyes and God will change. Which, of course, he doesn't. His party does not happen. That is really dark. And this is to the God who has made salvation all along to all the people he's encountered, proving that he's the one who's got the right to give life, to save people, and even to take life as well. I mean, think about it. All the people Jonah has met along the way are under God's hand and in God's heart in some way. Jonah himself, a prophet of God, saved by God via a fish. The captain of the ship that he sailed on, okay, frantically trying to save his crew from death, get saved. The sailors calling their gods, desperately trying to make it back to shore in a storm, saved by God. The king and a city on the brink, all of whom God graciously saves when they turn back to him. The point of the story is clear for us. And Jonah is forced to acknowledge it, even if he doesn't like it. And the point is this. But isn't that God's right? And in fact, let's face it, isn't that God's heart too? To save people, whoever they are, from whatever walk of life they come from, whatever we may agree or disagree with them over. You know, I mean, planks and specks for just a moment, as Jesus would say. Because it's very easy for us to say, isn't it? Well, of course we're not like Jonah. <laughs> of course we're not like him. But no way would we ever think like that. You know, those who were at the meeting last week, uh, loving God, loving people is part of, uh, of the, the new mission statement. That's a core part of it. And we say, well, of course we love people. Of course we love people. Why wouldn't we? Of course we love people. I mean, God loves people. Of course we too, too. Smiling face, of course we do. What, in, including the drug dealer? I mean, let's think about a list. You know, is God anti-gay people? 
Is he anti-Muslim? Is he anti-politicians that we moan so much about? After all, the Bible says we should pray for them. Where are we failing to apply the Bible to our thinking? Is God anti the drunk clubber who appears outside your house at 3 a.m. in the morning, causing all sorts of disturbance? Is he anti the partner who cheated on you? Is he anti them? Or does ultimately he want to save them? You know, where is it that we look at people or at what someone does or who someone is and apply that to how much you think we think God and in turn we should therefore be concerned for them. You see, that's rubber hits the road Christianity. That you know, the bit about Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't just apply to the people we like, to the people we might see eye to eye with. He makes no delineation for view or lifestyle or choices made. There's no love your neighbor except or besides so-and-so. Jonah tells us God's heart is for everyone because he wants to save them. Now, don't get me wrong. It is the old loves the sinner, hates the sin. Nineveh had to repent of all sorts of choices and decisions and idolatry and sinfulness. But then, don't we all? We all have to. You know, we're not being Christian liberalists. What God is anti is any behavior or worship or lifestyle that takes us further away from him as his word defines. That's why Jesus had to come in the first place to save us, to seek and save sinners from their sin. But for every single one of us who has come to know that grace, the grace of God, it was an outreach and expression of the love of God, the heart of God, the deep desire that he has for people. And he's wanting all to know and love him as Savior and Lord. He didn't have to do any of that didn't have to be gracious. didn't have to decide to be compassionate. But they are so a part of his nature that that is who he is towards us. And what that means is that that's the way in wisdom and in love we have to see all those we live among. That's what his people are called to do. This is the problem with Jonah. He sat in the desert, popcorn in hand, fuming, watching the city, wanting God to change his mind and burn it because he had decided that because of who they were and what they were doing, they weren't worth saving. We need to be challenged by that and say, the next time we come across that person we disagree with or, or that we don't want to talk to or hear something from someone on the news whom you disagree with or meet that person who, who, who even just annoys you somehow, take a moment and a breath and ask, 
what's the heart of God for this person? What does he want to do for them? And how should I respond? Because it's beyond nationalism, beyond my family first, beyond my tribe or my people. It's simply what is the heart of God for this person? What does he deeply desire for them, in them, and to grant them, to draw them closer to him? And this is where we see that the next heading, God's challenge of Jonah in his inability to fathom the purpose of God for all people, because really that's his problem. I mean, clearly part of it was a discipleship issue. Clearly it was. He just couldn't see it. He didn't understand it. He was immature in his faith. He displayed quite clearly in his actions that that was the case. He needed to relearn all of the truths that God had been showing him throughout the story. And we've all got to do that, haven't we? That's the truth of it. I have to as well. It's a lifelong process of, of growth and understanding, proactively to getting to know the Bible better so we better understand God's ways, so that we can better love him, and by loving him, we understand how we can love others better as well. It means getting to know him better, so that we can love him better. How do we do that primarily? Well, we've got it in black and white. We've got what he would say to us. It's why we teach. It's why we pray. It's why we open the Bible and read what it says for ourselves, rather than coming up with our own ideas about who God is and the way that he acts, or the way we think he should be like, or, or whom we think he should accept, or what we think we should do. All of it, all of it is God first, because everything in the Bible is God first. And it's God first because he is God who first moved to create, to sustain, to draw people together, to send a Savior, to be the Savior, and to tell us how we can then live better for him. I mean, that's a grace towards each of us anyway, regardless. That he would give us the ways and means to know that and to do that. Now, how does God teach Jonah what he needs to learn? Well, he does two things, essentially. First, for the visual among us, he uses a good old visual illustration so, so to remind Jonah of who he is, the Lord. And second, he puts things into perspective for Jonah so Jonah can better see this heart of God for people. <laughs> First of all, does anyone like gardening? Horticulturalists among us, this one's for you. Verse 6, the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Now, gardener I am not, but I know that there are very few quick-growing plants in this world. Far if you count the weeds that get grown in your own garden and that you get very frustrated with. Hmm, topic. Um, but anyway... I mean, poor guy, he just doesn't see it coming, does he? He doesn't see what's coming here. He is as fickle as they come. God causes a plant to rapidly grow up overnight to shade him from the elements, and he's still not getting what's going on. It's, it's almost comical. City saved, angry Jonah. Compassion of God for people, 
sad Jonah. Leafy plant to shade him, happy Jonah. He's fickle. He doesn't get what God is trying to tell him. Verse 7, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to, to die than to live. Leafy plant to shade him, happy Jonah. Worm eats plant, sad Jonah again. after he's the one who is vindictively sitting there, waiting and hoping that the city is going to burn. And here he is, angry about a plant that God had given to protect him from the elements being taken away. And God asks the question, doesn't he? Are you right to be angry about the plant? Jonah, fickle, says, it is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead, he goes. I mean, wow, this guy has got some serious anger management issues. But in the end, it's that anger that allows God to gently, caringly, but firmly put his preacher in his place. And display not just his concern for Jonah, which is important, but for all those who walk upon the earth. You see, a lot of people don't believe in God because they believe something about him that isn't, in fact, true. All sorts of things, in fact. Uh, you know, and it could be for all sorts of reasons. Maybe because it's more convenient. Perhaps they, they don't want to. You know, there could be all sorts of reasons. But, but many have a view of God that he is intrinsically vindictive. A bit like what Jonah feels should happen. But as Jonah closes, God simply reminds him of who he is. I mean, it's interesting with the illustration. There's a little detail in the text that you might have missed in reading it where it says in verse 6, the Lord God provided a leafy plant. When it comes to the worm that destroys the plant, it only says God provided a worm. Lord God provides uh, the plant. God provides a worm. The first, where he provides a means by which he is protected, the author uses the name of God himself. Yahweh, the Lord's the name of God, to explain his provision of grace. But when it comes to taking away, he only uses another name for God. And just God, to explain his taking away. Same God, but you can see one is more of God's heart than the other. He seeks to provide by his name, and though he takes it away too, it's a lesser part of his heart to do so. Grace trumps destruction. This is our God. And aren't we glad for it? I mean, isn't, what, isn't that what should spur us on to reach our world? You know, not, not remaining in holy huddles. Jonah himself, in fact, declared salvation, the only way of salvation to a lost world, comes from the Lord. You know, salvation for our world, it doesn't come through 
government or health care or religious or, or any other religious beliefs, but from the Lord to all who would hear and respond. That's what his people are to be about. And if that were not enough, God's final word addresses the situation directly. What this whole story has been about and the core lesson we're to take from it. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. You, Jonah, have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. In essence, he's saying, I am he who did this, not you. Should I, God, not have the right to trump your feelings and preferences and indeed your prejudices? And verse 11, should I not have concern, therefore, for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. There's one for the animal lovers among us this morning. Even if you can't love the people, Jonah, love the animals, he says. I mean, the fish saved you after all. Go figure on that. But this is where we rest at the end of this book. In our outreach and in our learning too, the story ends abruptly. We have no idea what happens to Jonah next. Not a clue. We don't get his response. Does he change? Does he sit there fuming for a while longer? What does he do? We don't know. We've got no idea. In a way, I think the book ends that way because the challenge then gets put in our court. It's for us to almost take on the story from that point and to lead off from it. How do we see God? You know, what do we do with his call to obedience? Where is our thinking faultly, particularly about people? Those, and it is so true of our world today, who God says cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's the picture he gives. They can't look and say, this is my right hand, this is my left hand, for, for, for whom all of this is so confusing. You know, confused about life and its purpose, uh, God's morality and its reasons, Jesus, why he came, the mixed up world we live in with all of its flaws and, and, and unfulfilling priorities. You know, there's a reason Jesus, in teaching on this story, said, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented the preaching of Jonah. But now something greater than Jonah is here. But he wasn't saying that to the people out there. He was saying that to Israel, to God's people. There's a reason Assyria was going to judge Israel, because Israel and Jonah should have known better. How much more does that challenge us to obedience? To reach a confused and mixed up world where what God says, people, for all of their outward confidence, are sat looking at their hands going, what? What's this? I don't understand. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't 
see what life's about. What, what, what is all of this? Because that's what our world's doing, isn't it? Grappling with those questions. And that was Nineveh. Unaware of the truth, like so many today, who also need to hear of the grace of God, his compassion, and understand it more fully. There was a, a lovely illustration of this just the other day, and I, and I finished with this. Um, we had our works day here at the church um, a week ago last Friday. And uh, a few of us were out the front of the church, and we had um, a lady appear at the front door of the church, um, upset and confused because she couldn't remember where she lived. Couldn't remember where she lived. I mean, can you imagine what that's like? That's a scary place to be. But she just couldn't remember. You know, and, and for me, it, it was lovely to watch as those who were there, we all stopped. All of us who were out the front, we stopped. Painting, cleaning, sanding, whatever it was, the busyness of whatever it was we were getting on with, we all stopped to try and help this lady out. She had no clue how to get back to where she lived. Quotes and quotes, she didn't know her right hand from her left, so to speak, in that sense. Um, but we, we got her sat down. We got her a, a cup of tea. And once she had calmed down a bit, she was able to remember the, the name of the home she had slipped out of, we might say. And we called and we found out that she did live there. They were able to send someone out to take care of her and to do what? To take her home. To lead her home. Do you know, that to me is just a small picture of what God's grace and compassion is like for his people to a needy world. A confused world that doesn't know where home is, but seeking and searching. And we can be the ones to point them in the right direction. A guy called D.T. Niles once said, Christianity is simply one beggar telling another where to find bread. Now, I don't know about you, but that's my heart for us. We beggars you may never have thought of yourself in that way, but we beggars helping other beggars to find where there is bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And in him, all of our promises, hopes, purposes, and compassion lies. So let's be that church that seeks to guide people home. Let's pray.
Lord God, your word is challenging, deeply reassuring that we have a God who is gracious and so compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Uh, for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we've, we've experienced that love, that grace, that compassion. And we know that we should be shocked by that, taken aback because we didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. There's nothing lovely in ourselves that we should get that by right. And yet it was for that very reason and the very character of who you are that you would send Jesus, God in flesh, to be our Savior and Lord. And how that humbles us. Us beggars. who have somehow been granted the crumbs from your table so that we can know salvation and so that we can find that way home. And so, Lord, as we look at our own lives and as we consider how we live, we pray as we've looked at in the book of Jonah, that that grace and compassion would stir us to love you more, to be obedient in greater and more measured ways. We pray, Father, that your heart, that we wouldn't try and second-guess your heart, Second guess how we think we should live. That we would see the heart of God, study your word, understand what you would say to us, and that you would fill us by your spirit with that same grace and compassion while seeking your truth and your love in a needy world. We pray, Lord God, for all whom we know, for whom life has been tough, who are struggling. Perhaps this last season with the pandemic has caused people to ask all sorts of questions have all sorts of worries and concerns for a world that seemed to be so in control, to suddenly be jolted out of control. All of those ways and means that were before, and suddenly something new happens, and it throws everything out of kilter. And people might be asking those questions, Lord. What is this about? Where can I turn? I'm confused. I don't know. Lord God, may we be the kind of people, the kind of church, 
that by your gracious provision to us, that we can be in the business of leading people home to you. And so, Father, for whatever we're feeling in these moments, stir us with a passion to be a people of your word, a people of your gospel, and a people of your heart for this world. Move in us, we pray. Stir us to your affections. Let our feelings drop away and may you take control. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our precious Savior and Lord. Amen.